Okay, we are going to be jumping back into our study of the book of Acts this morning. Chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. We started this chapter last week. So let me read. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you along with the council give notice to the tribute to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask uh, you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, telling no one that you have informed me of, of these things. And he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellently the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Uh, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was uh, being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to, and to Patras. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. When the, they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is what is technically called Paul's second defense. He is basically standing in the same place that Stephen had pretty much 20 years earlier 
and we know the outcome of that. Uh, and Paul had been at those proceedings with Stephen, and he had been in full agreement with the outcome of those proceedings. He did not cast stones, but he agreed with what was taking place, and he encouraged those who did throw stones to throw those stones. Perhaps even helping to gather stones. In those days, bold were his words, but in a sense he was a coward in his actions. He encouraged other people to do what he was not willing to do himself. He wanted no blood on his own hands, but he was willing to have other people have Stephen's blood on theirs. You see, the ironic thing is this is that Paul now is standing basically in the same place that Stephen had stood. Just remember this, and I think this has everything to do with Paul's approach to what is going on now and the things that are going to unfold in the days, weeks, even years ahead. That Jesus had spoken to him immediately before this particular passage we're studying this morning. This is what he said to him. He said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. Paul did not know a lot about what was going on necessarily at this point, but he did know this. He did know this, that he was not going to die until he got to Rome. That the Jews, where he is now, they can threaten him all they want to. They could try to do this. They could try to do that. And this was going to be five more years before Paul would actually, at least five more years before Paul actually would be executed at the order of Nero in Rome. Very often, these particular passages that we're talking about are are characterized as being Paul's defense of himself. I don't think that's what's going on at all. That what Paul's defending here is the gospel. And he does that over and over again as he stands before these progressive courts. But I would imagine that Paul very often reflected on these words that he heard from Jesus. He didn't know necessarily what was going to happen to him in detail before he got to Rome, but he knew that his life was safe until that actually happened. That he could not, that he would not die until he had testified of the gospel salvation in Rome. So they can threaten him, they can conspire against him, they can do this, that, or the other to him. But he knows ultimately that these Jewish religious leaders are spitting in the wind. But his enemies in Jerusalem plot to kill him. 
So serious are they about this that they bind themselves by an oath not to drink or eat anything until Paul is dead. Have you ever in your whole lifetime made that kind of a commitment to anything? Now we know how the outcome of all this how this unfolds, and <laughs> we know that even though they try to, they conspire to kill him, they don't do it. And you just wonder how many of those guys actually died because they kept their oath. Because we know that we can go without eating for a number of weeks, but we can only go without drinking for just days. And you just wonder, it'd be nice if the scripture had told us how many, pe- how many of these guys that made this oath, this heartfelt oath that they were willing to, to put everything on. How many of them actually kept their word? I would be surprised if any of them did. It just goes to show you an example of how people are very often willing to make very bold statements and commitments when it comes to things that they're passionate about. And I think this, among other things, is a measure of just how passionate they were about killing Paul, to being done with Paul. That you wonder if any one of them, if a single one of them, was actually true to their words. What does Jesus say about making oaths and such things? He says this, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He also said this in another place, Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, you don't control circumstances. Ever. There's a sense in which circumstances control you. It's hard to imagine how people can feel justified to be willing to take someone's life just because they disagree with them on something. We understand what's going on here is these guys, they want to shut Paul up, period, just like they wanted to shut Jesus up. And they seem to be willing to do just about anything to make that happen. Is it because they don't like Paul? Is it because they can't stand the sight of him? They don't like the way he looks or this, that, or the other? The fact he used to be one of them and now he's on the other side? I don't think that's it at all. I think it's that they don't like the message. They didn't like the message of Jesus. They don't like the message of Paul. And there are a lot of people out there in the world today that don't like the message that we have to bring them either. But you're seeing the courts in action here. We're Presbyterians for two fundamental reasons.
the principle primary one is this, is that we believe that the elders, appointed elders in the church, are those who govern the church. It's very clear in Scripture that this was the Lord's intention. Not that churches are governed by pastors, but the churches are governed by elders, a plurality of elders, not just one, but a number of men called elders. But we also are Presbyterians because we recognize and acknowledge that there is a system of courts to be utilized to deal with issues. We acknowledge three different courts in our denomination. The session, which is the ruling elders and the teaching elders here at Springs Church. But we also, as a church, are, are members of Central Florida Presbytery, which makes us also members of General Assembly. Technically speaking, these are ecclesiastical courts. Courts that God has set up to deal with ecclesiastical issues. Let me tell you, I, there's, there's, if I could close my eyes and wake up in Orlando, I would love to go to Presbytery. <laughs> but I can't do that. I have to drive. And I was down there just last week. Usually, you know, Lloyd will go with me, which is very nice sometimes. When he can't go, he goes. Just so I can have somebody to talk to instead of myself. All the way down there, sometimes, I, you know, I get together with Mike when he's there. Uh, and that sort of thing. But, but, but last week, I'm at Presbytery, and I walk into this big church. It was at St. Paul's, if you've ever been there before. It's one of the biggest PCA churches in Orlando. But I walk in the back, and I was a little bit late because of traffic. That's why I hate it. It's the traffic, traffic, traffic. And you, you can't time it. It took me like two and a half hours to get from here to where I was going. And if traffic's not bad, I could make it in an hour and 15 minutes easy. But anyway, I came in a few minutes late, and so I just kind of sat in the back. And then, you know, and we always start with a worship service. So their worship service is starting. We're... We're, we're doing this, and, and then we finished. There was a break after the worship service, and, and I sat in the back row when I came in just so I wouldn't disturb anybody uh, and whatever. But I like to get down closer because my hearing's not the, as good as it used to be, as most of you know, and whatever. And if I sit in the back, I can't hear half of what people are saying. So I moved on down and sat there, and we did some business for a while, and then we took a break, and I got up, and I see this guy running down the outside aisle headed for me, making a beeline for me, and I'm going, he kind of looks familiar, but who in the world is that? <laughs> but he came up to me. His name is Larry Gamble. He's a guy that, that I sat beside in some of my first seminary classes 30-something years ago. <laughs> And I haven't seen him since then. And he saw me, and he recognized me. And let me tell you, I probably wouldn't have recognized this guy. Uh, it was very helpful that he had a name tag on. 
but but anyway, you know, we we came together, and, and you know, I was reflecting upon this the other day. I'm thinking about, you know, we were just students then. We didn't have any official capacity. We weren't teaching elders or, you know, anything like that in the denomination. And we, so we were students, you know, friends sitting close together and helping each other understand things sometimes, and uh, and that sort of thing. But but things are different now. Now he and I are presbyters. That means that we sit on the courts of the PCA. Something that we take very seriously. But he's transferred down to Orangewood. He's going he's to be down there in Orlando now. So I'll be able to see Larry Gamble every time we have Presbytery. But it really is, it really is providential when things like that happen. You know, it happens to me pretty regular when I go to General Assembly and whatever. I see people I haven't seen for a coon's age. And so we'll have conversation. Let me tell you one of the things that's really kind of unique. And in, in these conversations, and, 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 and it's this, and then, you know, I'll be talking with these guys, and they'll be saying, well, I was in so-and-so for five years, and I was over there for ten years, and I was there for whatever, and whatever. And I'm thinking, I'm still where I started. You know how unusual it is for a pastor to remain in the same pulpit as long as I've been here? It's not the common thing. But anyway, the whole thing is here is we were two guys who were just, you know, just getting into things at that very point, the very baby steps of us moving toward becoming ordained ministers and whatever. Now, and, and, and again, I haven't seen or heard anything from him for 30-something years. But we talked. We had lunch with each other and all the stuff, you know, that we've been through and this, that, and the other. And you know what amazed both of us is that we were still here. That we were still doing this, this, what, we, what we started doing 30 years ago. Sometimes we have to make very difficult judgments that significantly affect other people's lives. It's something that we take very seriously. We do it for one simple reason, because Christ has called us to. We also understand this, that we will all give an account to Christ Jesus for what we have done, but also for what we haven't done that we should have done. Paul understands that he is going to give an accounting for his life, but it's not to the Roman court or to the Jewish court. The accounting for his life is going to be before the court of Christ. That supersedes absolutely everything else. He also knows that what he does now will determine to some degree what the outcome of that accounting will be.
In other words, he understands this, that what he does or doesn't do now will echo into eternity. That truth is just as true for me and for you as it was for Paul. For Paul, this was a defining principle in his life. He lived by it. He ate it. He drank it. He slept. He lived his life accordingly. The question before us this morning is, do we? Just remember, Paul is able here to stand for Christ and the gospel when he's being pressed so hard to do otherwise. But let me just say this to you this morning. This is not just one of those pull up your bootstraps and do better things. Try harder. I hope you don't ever get that from any sermons I preach. Because let me tell you something, you don't have the ability to do what needs to be done. Neither do I. It has to be God-given. See, we understand this, that there's a character in this whole picture that doesn't even stand out at all, but he's there. His name is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit working in Paul that's enabling him to do all of these things, to say the things that he says, to, to stand firm in his faith, to stand firm in his faith when he's being pressured by masses of angry people to give up the ghost. At this point, he has already written to the Corinthian church, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? It's, it's you and I. I think one of the, the biggest faults, in a sense, failures of a good bit of the Protestant church is that we haven't emphasized our absolute dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And again, it was a principle that Paul laid down very early on in his preaching to the Corinthians. We are Holy Spirit dependent absolutely, completely. Especially when it comes to doing the things of God. That's a very fundamental and practical principle that I think a lot of Protestants never hear in their whole lifetime. And what I would say is those who understand and practice that principle typically are those who accomplish a lot for the kingdom. Because they learn to rely on the Holy Spirit. They learn to humbly rely on the Holy Spirit. Regardless of the circumstances they find themselves in. 
Turns out that Paul's nephew finds out about this conspiracy. It's the only place in Scripture that we have any information at all about Paul's family. That we know he had a sister from this, and we know that she had a son. And that when the, when the nephew heard about this conspiracy, he went to warn Paul about it. Family blood often runs very deep. Generally, people will do, some, do things sometimes for family that they might not do for other people. Again, here we have just a little snapshot of, of Paul's. This is the only snapshot of Paul's family we have in Scripture at all. But one of the things we can glean from it was this, is that he was very, very well highly regarded by his family members. And Paul could have kept this to himself. Could have. But he doesn't. He notifies the authorities. Some people might say, well, Paul's so full of spirit, Paul's so godly, no, 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 this, that, and the other. Why in the world would he even do that? He just, 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 just trusted that God. Why would he turn to the Romans to protect him? Because unbeknownst to the Romans, Paul understands something, and that is that God actually controls them too. Paul acted on what he knew. It says some things to us that, you know, not directly but indirectly. One of those is Paul didn't have a death wish. Nor was he passive when it comes to these sorts of things. Nor did he have a martyr syndrome. He did embrace his death when his time came. But this wasn't his time to die, and he knew it. And he took action in regard to it. Some Christians have adopted the approach to living in this world. And it kind of summarizes this. As Christians, we just need to, to simply let go and let God. You know, whatever comes, it comes. And whatever goes, it goes. It's God's will. That we don't enter into the picture at some point. 
In other words, it's with the idea that, that what we do or we don't do doesn't ultimately make any difference, so why do we do anything? I mean, God has foreordained not only whatever comes to pass, but the means by which whatever comes to pass comes to pass. It really is amazing because the tribune here, this Roman, you know, and we always think of Roman leadership as being corrupt and immoral, and which it was, and all that other stuff. So it's really surprising that uh, this Roman official even takes the approach that he does. There's a sense in which his life might be a little better off if they did get rid of this Paul fellow. He wouldn't be aggravated with it anymore. You know, this is a measure of just how much these, these Jews hated Paul, and that was they, they were willing to fight a little literal battle with the Romans to have their way with Paul. That Paul sent to... to in a way taken by a sizable number of Roman guards around 600 guys not a small force not just you know 5 or 10 or 20 or 600 guys seasoned Roman troops Just to escort one prisoner from Jerusalem to Caesarea, which was about 74 miles. 200 foot soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. 470 men total to escort one prisoner. And not only that, in the middle of the night, not in the daylight, not in the broad of day, but in the middle of the night. It tells us a few things, and one of those is that the, the, the Roman governor believed that the Jewish mob at this moment would do just about anything to get its murderous hands on Paul. And his intention was to give them a major deterrent. To discourage them from what they've intended to do. From taking matters into their own hands. The tribune also sent a letter to Felix, the governor. Not noted to be uh, an upstanding guy at all. You need to understand that his reputation, like with so many of these other higher-ups, was that he was exceptionally cruel. And it was very much anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. Even though he was married to a Jewish woman. 
one of his wives. Turns out he wasn't a very good governor. He was responsible in part to an insurrection that took place in A.D. 66. But surprisingly, he will treat Paul fairly. He was a corrupt man. He was crooked. Not a moral person. So we see God's hand in this, guiding this corrupt, wicked, evil man to his desired end. We would be blind to believe that the mood in America toward religion is not changing. in regard to Christianity in particular. I mean, we're at the point now, I think it's even possible for us to even, even imagine that the circumstances that we find ourselves in today could drastically and rapidly change. I mean, there's a growing percentage of people in the good old U.S. of A. today that would like nothing more than to shut the church down completely and absolutely and totally. A lot of them are a younger generation because they simply have not had religious education other than atheism taught to them by parents very often, taught to them by school teachers very often. It's hard for you and I to even relate to this. I can maybe a little bit more than you, some of you can, because I taught at the college in Ocala for years as an adjunct. And I observed the transitioning of the generations moving through there over that, I think it was six or eight years period. In other words, the students at the sixth year were very different morally and whatever than the students of my first year. The mood in America toward religion and Christianity in particular is changing. You and I might think that, well, you know, I'm older. Most of us here are older, and we understand that we don't have near as many years to live as we've lived. There's a sense in which we could kind of say we're on our way out of here. That sort of thing. But those circumstances, our circumstances we find ourselves in today could change like 180 degrees in the blink of an eye. One of the things, and, and God uses things like this to teach us, and one of those is this, is, is, is you know, one of the things we should glean from all this this morning is this, is that we, you and I, we are utterly and absolutely, completely, totally dependent upon God for everything. All things. Will our faith hold if the time comes to stand the firm ground? 
that you and I might find ourselves in circumstances similar to those in which Paul finds himself at this point is still not very likely. That you and I would ever stand before any kind of a religious tribunal or, 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 or a, you know, a regular governmental thing that has, is, is taking contrary position to our religion. It's very unlikely even where we are today, even though we seem to be moving kind of in that direction. God has blessed you and I in ways that he has not blessed the vast majority of people that have lived in this world. There have been a lot of Christians who have lived in lands where it was completely and absolutely illegal for them to share the gospel with anybody. We have brothers and sisters that are living in places like that today. Where if they do it and they get caught, they could spend time in jail or something even worse. We're spoiled. We really are. We're spoiled. Because we live in this place where we can talk to anybody and everybody about Jesus anytime we want to. If they're willing to listen to what we have to say. If they're not willing to listen, I would encourage you, don't try. God had expectations for Paul. Paul knew it. The Lord has expectations for you and for me. Do we know it? See, Paul not only knew it, he practiced it. It was his life. Do we think for a minute that God has no expectations for us? That God has no expectations for me? And we all know the answer to that. Let me ask you something. Do you think our children and our grandchildren are worthy enough for us to fight the fight? Because likelihood, we're not going to have to deal with the real crux and the heart of this so much as they are. We cannot be retired people who are literally retired when it comes to everything. We do not retire from life we may retire from our job but we do not retire from life we do not retire from being Christians and sometimes it's going to bring us in places where we're not necessarily all that comfortable and let me just tell you this if you've never been in a position as a Christian where you felt really uncomfortable you haven't gone where Christ wants you to be
But there's something that helps us, and that is this, that we understand this, is God is absolutely sovereign in absolutely everything. That means he creates and he controls every circumstance. Not just some of them, but all of them. If that were not true, how in the world could he lay claim to the idea that he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass? If that were not true, someone could throw a monkey wrench in the works and throw everything off track. Paul knows a lot of things, but he understands this, and that is that he finds himself in the circumstances he's in now because God created those circumstances. It was the will of God himself that Paul be where Paul is doing what Paul is doing. He's not sitting around saying, Oh Lord, why'd you let this happen to me? Why me? Why couldn't somebody else have to deal with this? I mean, we talk about it. We talk about the sovereignty of God a lot. Do we really believe it? James Boyce, in regard to this passage, wrote this. He said, circumstances do not limit God. Circumstances are not independent of God. God creates circumstances. God is the master of circumstances. And this is a simple truth, in fact, that Paul is trusting everything into. So if Paul, under the threat of death, can't trust God, can't we? Can't we?